0: seated. Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. Last week we began a month-long study looking at the life of Samson. Absolutely incredible life. Just even in a a literary sense, this life is just a masterpiece of the way that these chapters work together. And we're actually going to do that when we get to the end of uh, chapter 16. We're going to go back and kind of have a, a literary review of the life of Samson and see how this all ties in together. Last week in chapter 13, we see the announcement of the birth of this man, this mighty hero that finally, a deliverer is being raised up. God himself has made this miracle happen of giving Manoah and his wife a baby to judge, to deliver, to save Israel. And we have high hopes. We have great expectations going into chapter 14. But of course, we're going to be let down. Anytime you place your hope, your expectation, your desire in humans, they're going to let you down. Chapter 13 ends on an amazing high note, but chapter 14 starts with a terrible note. It's bad from the beginning and it doesn't get much better. But throughout this section of scripture, this chapter, I think that we are going to see God's character and ourselves in light of who God is in a new way, in different ways. And I I pray that as we see who our God is, how he works, and who we are in light of his working, that we would be changed. Um, This is going to take a work of the spirit as it always does. But to that end, I'm going to ask that God would be pleased to work in our hearts, to soften our hearts, to change our hearts, and to conform us into the image of his Son. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we come before you again knowing that we have an impossible task before us. Humanly speaking, we cannot change our own hearts. If that were possible, Jesus would not have to have come to be the agent of change in our lives, to bring regeneration. If it were possible to change ourselves, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would not have left the helper. But God, we need help. We are a desperate people. We've sung it. Lord, I need you. We've declared it. And now we come before you yet again, pleading with you to open our eyes, to behold wonderful things from your law. Oh, we'd see God's character, your amazing, beautiful, holy, awesome character. We'd see ourselves in light of it and we'd be changed because of it. Father, be pleased to work in our hearts this morning a miracle of sanctification, raising new affections so that we'd walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There are four aspects in chapter 14 that we're going to kind of divide this chapter. Four main uh, areas that we see on display in this chapter. Two, dealing with the way that God's working and two, dealing with the way that Samson is working. So let's start off verses 1 through 4. Let's look at God's purpose in the life of Samson. God's purpose on display here in chapter 14. Then Samson, verse 1, went down to Timnah and he saw a woman in Timnah one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came back and he told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. In Hebrew, the emphasis is stacked on that word woman. Like mom and dad, there is a woman that I saw that is amazing. There is an amazing woman out there. And... Father and mom are happy. Hey, this is great. Who is she? She's a Philistine woman. His parents no doubt remember the angel of the Lord promised that Samson would deliver Israel from the Philistines, not marry the Philistines. This has got to be a little bit backwards. You're not going to marry into their families. You're going to defeat their families. So his father says, verse 3, Father and mother say, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives, uh, the people of Israel, among all of our people, that you should go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? This is not a racial issue. This is not an ethnic issue. God's never had a problem marrying outside of your ethnicity. Um, Moses marries Zipporah, different ethnicities. This is not an issue of, you have to marry inside of your ethnicity. And uh, unfortunately, the church did a terrible job of that through the age of the civil rights movement of saying, well, I think the Bible might say, it. no, no, no. The Bible does not say that you can only marry inside of your ethnicity. And this verse is not saying, come on, marry inside of your ethnic group. No. What this verse is saying is marry inside of your covenant group that's why his father and mother say this woman is of the uncircumcised people they're outside of the covenant their faith is different than our faith it's not an issue of ethnicity it's an issue of faith second corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 16 you know that passage don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers don't be in a partnership that is intimate, whether marriage or whether uh, any other form of a, a deep bond where they are your greatest companion, your greatest friend. That bond should not be there. If you claim to be a believer, do not have that bond with anybody that is an unbeliever. Or James 4. We're going to get to this in our Bible studies. James chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, anybody who makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you befriend the world... You're an enemy of God. Now, of course, we have to be in the world, but not of the world. We're in the world to, to speak to the world, to plead with the world, to repent, but you don't join forces with the world. Those two verses are great. Second Corinthians chapter six and James 4 are great in speaking of the issue of marrying a non-believer. But I actually think one of the best passages, very obscure. I, I heard it in a sermon by a pastor a while ago, and it just stood out to me that I had never seen this in this verse. First John, chapter three verse one. You know this verse. Behold, how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. And then John says this, For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And the pastor that I heard preach the sermon say, there's an implication there. Why would you ever want to be married to a non-believer? If you're a believer, why would you ever want to be married to a non-believer? Because they don't know who your God is. They don't know who you are. They don't know us. And you want your spouse to know you. And they will have no idea who you are because you're a child of God and they don't know God and they don't know you. So, Manoah... And his wife are saying that, in essence, to Samson. Please don't do this. Don't step outside of the covenant community. But Samson's going to say, no. Verse 2, get her for me as a wife. Uh, Don't ever say that to your parents. (laughs) Get her for me. Why? Why does Samson say, get her for me? End of verse 3. But Samson said to his father, after his father's please, get her for me. Because, my Bible says, she looks good to me. Might have a different translation of that. That's actually not a good translation of that. And that's unfortunate that that's the translation. Because literally the words are, because she is right in my own eyes which that should ring a little bit in our ears because we've seen it already. And that's the theme verse. That's the last verse in the book of Judges that you can go back through the book of Judges and see that's the entirety of the theme of Judges. This is what it looks like when every man does that which is right in his own eyes. That's what this verse is saying. Get her for me because she's right in my own eyes. So Samson is reflecting Israel's spiritual state rather than reflecting God's ideal for his own people. And Samson's life, you know how it ends. You know it's a tragic story. His life illustrates what happens when you do what is right in your own eyes. Whenever you think of Samson, and if you're like me, way too harsh and critical and judgmental, and you hear the word Samson, you think, man, what a loser. That guy was just an idiot. His story, his life, is on display in the scriptures To warn you and me, this is what it looks like if you live doing that which is right in your own eyes. This is what it looks like. Remember Samson's end? I mean, how incredibly poetic that Samson's end is that his eyes are going to be gouged out. You live according to those, you're going to die according to those. It's an amazing account. So, get her for me. I want her. She's right for me. I want her. And because of this, we learn two things about Samson, just right off the bat. We learn two things about his character. Number one, we learn that he is sensual. In the truest nature of that word, we typically think of sexually sensual things, but sensual in the truest nature of it, his senses are what drives him. He lives only according to what he sees, how he feels, what he senses. That's what dictates how he lives. He doesn't live like we're talking about biblical counseling, according to what he thinks in his mind. He just lets his emotions and his senses dictate what he wants to do. And number two, we see about his character, he is incredibly unteachable. He's incredibly unteachable. Because he is sensual and he just goes off of his feelings, then when somebody comes alongside and says, I don't think that you should be doing that, Samson, like his mom and his dad, he says, I don't really care what you think, I care what I feel. This is right to me. He's unteachable. He completely disregards his parents' authority. This isn't looked upon favorably now, but back then it was unheard of to do something like this. Just think like Fiddler on the Roof, right? Um, if you're going to marry outside of the Jewish community, like the third daughter does, you're dead to me. And that's, think of that happening here. How did Samson get this way? I want to take two minutes very quickly. Just, I think there's an implication here for parenting, not as how to parent, because I don't think we see that, but how to think of parents. Again, if you're anything like me, you look and you go, come on, Manoah and Manoah's wife, because she's not named, we need a name. But Manoah and Manoah's wife, what are you doing? How did, how did Samson get this way? Surely they must have done something. But I want to caution, first and foremost, my own heart And if you read the Bible the way that I'm reading the Bible and you have that knee-jerk reaction, please, let's be cautious and tread lightly here. Yes, parents need to teach their kids that God loves them, that they need God, that God is holy, that they will go to hell apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ being added into their account. We need to teach that to our kids and we need to model that to our kids. One of the biggest Um, most dangerous and damaging things in the life of our kids is when they see us say something and then model the exact opposite, especially from nominal Christians that claim the name of Christ but then live completely differently than the gospel would tell us to. So we need to teach our kids that. Does this necessarily mean that Samson's parents, because of how Samson has turned out in this passage, that Samson's parents didn't do this? And the answer is, not at all. You cannot make that statement that, well, because of where Samson's at, his parents must have messed up. You can't make that statement. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 5, every single person has individual responsibility, Your sins, you will be judged for. Your parents' sins, they will be judged for. And you will not be judged for your parents' sins. And your parents will not be judged for your sins. Your parents' faith cannot get you into heaven. And your faith will not get your kids into heaven. So, a caution against seeing Samson as a demonstration of Samson's parents being bad parents. And you might have... Proverbs chapter 22 in your mind, right? Train up a child in the way you should go, and in the end he won't depart from it. What about that? That's not a, a promise. It's a proverb. It's a principle. This is how life usually works, but not always. In fact, if you go throughout the Old Testament and you look at a righteous king and how many righteous sons they had, most of them turn out to be wicked. And you look at wicked kings like Manasseh, terrible kings. And then you see their kids? They're awesome. Why is that? It's because of the grace of God. So a caution against just jumping right in and saying, come on, Samson's parents, do more, be better. Why have you failed him? And if that caution isn't enough, verse 4 will tell us God's purpose in all of this. Verse 4 says, However, his father and mother did not know that this was of the Lord, for the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. This is not saying that Samson is excused for his wrongdoing. This verse, verse 4, does not say, Well, then Samson's okay, because God's using Samson. No, no, no. Sin is still sin. And it's not saying that Samson's parents should just let him sin. Well, just go ahead and sin because it's in God's plan. No, no, no. Samson's parents are right to step in and say, don't marry this woman. Marry somebody in the covenant community, Samson. But what this verse is telling us is that neither Samson's foolishness or stubbornness is going to prevent God from accomplishing his design and plan. Samson was raised up to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He can do that either through his righteousness or he can do that through his sinfulness, but God's going to make it happen through Samson. He's going to make it happen. This is where we're going to jump a little bit into the deep end of the theological pool because you can see God is working through sin. All that is a part of God's providence is not necessarily always pleasing to him. All that is a part of God's providence is not necessarily always pleasing to Him. Many times in the building of the structure of God's providential sovereign plan, He uses bricks of sin and pain and suffering and mess. There are bricks in the building of God's sovereign plan that God is not pleased with. Sin never pleases God, but God can always be glorified even in those moments. One of the best books that I could recommend to you on this topic. It's very short, but it's very, very deep. is a book by John Piper called Spectacular Sins. How sin, even as a displeasing thing to God, can still bring him glory. And this text should give us amazing hope for God's people. Frequently, all that we can see in our lives is the sin, the pain, the mess, the suffering. It's all that dominates the scene. But God's working in it. God's working through it. And our greatest comfort is hidden in what we don't know and can't see. Samson's parents didn't know that God was going to use this for his purposes. They couldn't see that. They probably thought, Samson, you're going to destroy God's plan. And here, verse 4 tells us, no, God's still working. No one can deny that watching your child do something that's offensive to God or even walking away from God entirely is anything but devastating. But don't ever forget verse 4. We don't know what God is doing entirely, and what we don't know may prove to be our greatest comfort. Just think about Job. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. We were involved in that secret, right? We were involved in what was happening, but he didn't know. He just saw life was awful. But now that he knows, now in heaven, Job is probably seeing us even talking about him as comfort and saying, oh, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. I I didn't know, but it was written down. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know God's plan, but now it makes sense and it was worth it. Same thing here for Manoah and his wife. Same thing for us as well. God's doing something in and through the sin that is going on around us. It's the same thing as Genesis 50 verse 20. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. The exact same action. What did Joseph's brothers intend for evil? Many of them wanted to kill him. They hated him. There's another parenting section because uh, Jacob didn't really help with the hatred. I love all my sons, but man, this is my favorite son. Like, he just constantly, Joseph's my favorite. Joseph's my favorite. No wonder the other brothers, we hate this guy. So they want to kill him. And then Reuben speaks up and says, please don't do that. And so they're going to sell him into slavery. And then they lie about his supposed death to Jacob. And Joseph says, to his brothers, your sin, God intended that very thing. Your lying, your covering up, your desire to murder me, God intended that for good. Think of the cross. I mean, the cross is the greatest place to go to see. Uh, one of the questions I, I ask people is Was God happy when Jesus was murdered? Well, no. Because people are breaking God's law by betraying him, by murdering him, false witnesses, lying. So the cross is not pleasing to God. But at the same time, it's the highest form of God's pleasure ever. It was his plan that his son would be crushed. That does not undo that there was sin involved and those people who sinned against Jesus are wicked and that they will be judged for that. Jesus himself says they need forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They're sinning. But it also means that even through sin, even in the act of sin itself, God can use it to bring about what pleases him. And so we see here in verse four, God's purpose. God is working through Samson because he promised Israel the Philistines are gonna get kicked out. I will drive them out. And I'm going to use Samson to do do that. Whether it's in righteousness or whether he's a wicked sinner, I'm still going to use him. So we see God's purpose in verses 1 through 4. Now let's look at Samson's strength in verses 5 through 9. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and his mother. So I just said, don't judge his parents. I think you can judge him here. I think that they should not have gone with Samson. Um, I think that they should have said... Uh, The two A's, my wife and I always talk about two A's with our kids and with anybody. We will always accept you. We will always love and accept you, but that doesn't mean we don't approve of some of the things that you're doing. And I think his parents should have said that. Hey, look, when you come back, we will love you. We will always accept you, but we cannot be complicit in what you're doing. We cannot, we do not approve of what you're doing and we can't be involved in it. And in fact, I think we can prove that that's true, that they shouldn't have gone with him because as they go with him, they're going to be involved in sin because of what Samson's going to bring them into. We'll see it in just a a few minutes. So, they go down to Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring towards Samson. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. This is the first time that we see the Spirit of the Lord doing something through him. We saw that the Spirit of the Lord had moved in him and was working in him. In verse 25, stirring in him. Uh, 25 of of chapter 13. But this is the first time that we see the Spirit of the Lord actually accomplishing something through him in a physical way. So he comes upon him mightily so that he tears this lion. I love this. As one tears a young goat. Um, For a, a, a simile, an analogy, a metaphor to work, it has to be understood by all people, right? If I were to say Samson's as strong as like the Hulk... We all go, yeah, that makes sense. So apparently back in this day, there's a lot of young goats that are just being torn (laughs) constantly because the writer goes, you know, just like you tear a young goat. So Samson tears this lion as somebody would tear a young goat. He didn't have anything in his hand, just rips this lion apart. But he doesn't tell his his dad or his mom what he had done. What's, What's happening here? This is the very first time that we see Samson's strength. Did he know he was strong? Did he know? Oh, here comes the line. I can get him. Did he just go, ah, I'm going to be eaten? And then, well, oh, I ripped him like a young goat. This is great. What, what happened here? I think our picture of Samson, most pictures of Samson in, you know, illustrated Bibles for kids or videos for kids, I think they're wrong in two ways. Number one, usually Samson is this very rugged, handsome man. But if you think about the description of who Samson was, the Bible says that there was never a razor to ever cut a hair on his body. So, I mean, beards are great, but you have to sculpt a beard to make it look good. This is just He's got to have crazy hair all over the place. So I don't think he's attractive. He certainly doesn't smell good. But secondly, I don't think, again, in, in our pictures, we have Samson as this hulkish figure. I don't think he looked super buff. Um, one of the reasons why is because when he does the feats of strength that he's going to do publicly, people are going to say, that's the spear of the Lord. There's no way this guy did it. If he's super buff, they're going to say, well, of course he did that because he's been working out. Look at him. So I think that Samson probably looked like me. I mean, I know that you think that I work out seven hours a day, but (laughs) Samson probably looked like me. And so I think Samson's walking to Timnah in his sin saying, I want what I want. And a lion jumps out and he thinks, I'm going to die. And the spirit says, no, you're not because I'm using you. You can't die until I finish using you and rips this lion apart. What must he have thought when he finished doing that? If it was me, I would have said, I need to tell the whole world what I just did. This is amazing. (laughs) Instagram instantly, I need to tell everyone, look at this. But he doesn't tell anyone. He does not tell his mom and his dad. Why? Why doesn't he tell his parents? Because he's touched an unclean animal. He's touched something that was unclean. And he's broken his Nazarite vow. I think there's some aspect of shame and guilt and, uh, what are my parents going to think? He's broken this vow. What should he have done? He should have stopped and said, Dad, Mom, I touched a dead lion. I actually killed the lion, so therefore I touched what was dead, and I need to go to the tabernacle for cleansing. I need to go make things right before the Lord. I have broken my vow. But instead he says, nope, I'm still going to Timnah because all he's thinking about is this woman. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Why? Why does the Spirit of the Lord come upon him here? I think it's a preview for Samson to see, and for us to see as well, of what Samson's going to do with the Philistines. When Samson picks up a donkey's jawbone and says, I can kill all of you, thousand of you, he's doing that the same way that David stood before Goliath. You remember what David said? Goliath, I know I can destroy you because God has given me power to destroy lions and tigers. I I know that I can do this. There's a preview of strength, and therefore I'm relying on God's faithfulness in the past, knowing that he'll be faithful in the future. I think that's what God's doing here through Samson. God does this through all of us and in our lives all the time. It's not going to be a roaring lion. I don't expect to walk out of here and see a lion and go, ah, and rip it apart and then think, wow, God's been faithful. But God is faithful to you and to me every day, and we see it, and we can trust that He will be faithful and be trustworthy in the future because of the previews of His trustworthiness in the past. So He says, Not telling mom and dad, I'm going to Timnah. He talks to the woman, verse 7. She looked good to Samson again. Uh, my Bible says, looked good. And it's literally right in his eyes. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands, and he went on, eating as he went. When he came to his dad and his mom, he gave some to them, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them that he had scraped it out of the dead lion. Well, of course you're not going to tell your parents that. Hey, eat this. This is uh, from a dead lion. This will be good. Um, I just imagine his parents... Never tasted honey from a dead lion, but I imagine his parents saying, ooh, honey, this is great. Something's off with this honey. What's, what, what is, where'd you get this, Samson? Oh, no, just, it's a special, like, Leon flavor. So just, you'll be fine. Eat it and enjoy it. But look at what's happened now. Because Samson brought his mom and his dad involved in his disobedience. Now they're unclean as well. They've eaten from an unclean source. He's defiling his parents. They're involved in his sin. And Samson is knocking out his Nazarite vow one piece at a time. Can't eat anything unclean, touch anything unclean, he's doing that. Next, he's going to go to a drinking party. You can't drink any alcoholic beverage or anything from the fruit of the vine, he's going to do that. Um, Then he's going to have his hair cut off in a couple of weeks by Delilah. So he's just going through, knocking down every aspect of his Nazarite vow. So he gives the honey to his parents, doesn't say anything, and they keep going. So we see Samson's strength on display physically, but number three, let's look at Samson's weakness. We see his strength, but number three, his weakness. Verses 10 through 18. Then his father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there. The word for feast is from the root word for drinking. So this is a drinking party. It was a big festival. It was a custom to try and win over the bride's father. You would either, as a groom build a house and say look i can provide for your daughter or you'd say look i have so much money i can throw a big huge drinking party a feast for seven days i have a lot of money so i can take care of your daughter so there's a party the young men customarily did this verse 11 when they saw him they brought 30 companions to be with him 30 philistines to come hang out at this party what are the 30 philistines doing at this party They hate Israel. They own Israel. And they're using Israel. And so these Philistines are simply saying, we're going to plunder you. You're going to set up a party, lavish party. We're just going to plunder it all. We're going to take over and enjoy all of it. Samson doesn't really like that. So verse 12, he says, let me give you a riddle. I'm going to propound a riddle to you. Apparently, in those days, you know, there weren't board games or videos to watch. So, let's just talk about riddles. So, they start throwing out riddles. You tell it to me. Tell me the meaning within seven days of the feast and find it out, and I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. So, basically for uh, our day and age, that would be 30 pieces of underwear and 30 suits. So, I'm going to give you a lot if you figure this riddle out. But, verse 13, if you're unable to tell me, then you give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. This is an expensive proposition. Um, If Samson were to lose, he would have to give each person new underwear and a new suit. But if Samson wins, he's set for life. He doesn't have to do much more shopping in his life. So he says, here's the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. I love that, because in Hebrew, it actually does rhyme. Uh, the words sound the same at the end, so I love that it keeps the, the phonic sounds, the rhyme scheme of that, and they can't tell the riddle in three days. They're starting to worry. It's been three days. We don't know what this riddle is. Now, again, how cool for us. We're on the outside looking, and we know what this riddle is. We know the secret. We know what's going on, but they don't, and they start to get scared, and on the third day or the fourth day in verse 15, when they start to get terrified, they go to Samson's wife. They figure out, we don't know what this riddle is. We don't want to lose money. So we'll go to Samson's wife, who is a Philistine woman. She's one of us. And they go to her and they say this, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle. Or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Literally in Hebrew, we will burn you and your father in your house with fire. So your house is going to come down upon you. We're going to kill you. So we're introduced to the Philistines. They're not nice people. They're fine to do this over 30 pieces of clothing. Literally for each man, one person, just grab underwear and a suit and give it to Samson. But that's too much. They don't want to be plundered by Samson. They want to do the plundering. So they say, what what have you done? Have Have you invited us to this party to impoverish us? The irony of that statement, we actually came here to impoverish Samson, and now you've come here, you've invited us here to impoverish us. You're taking all of our money. So, they say, tell us. Obviously, foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Delilah, right? Tell your husband to tell us. Get the the meaning of what's going on here. Tell us the answer. So, Samson's wife wept before in verse 16 and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. And he says, man, I haven't even told it to my parents I haven't told anybody, woman, get off, like stop this, this is what's happening. He's, Samson does not find good women, he, he's always going after terrible women, and so he says, stop this, but she weeps and weeps, verse 17, for seven days while the whole feast lasts, and on the seventh day, he finally says, Fine, I'll tell you, because she pressed him so hard, literally wore him out to the point of exhaustion. I'm done, like enough, whatever. And he caves. So he tells her. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, I like this, before the sun went down, they know the answer to this. They got it on the fourth day, but they're waiting until the sun goes down. Samson's thinking, Ah, I won. And right before the sun goes down, they say, Oh, by the way, we know the answer. What's sweeter than honey, and what's stronger than a lion? And Samson says to them, my Bible says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now the heifer here is his wife, so this marriage is off to a great start because calling people heifer, weeping, saying, I need to get my way. My, my favorite rendering of this, because this also in the Hebrew, this riddle, this, uh, this saying was uh, in a rhyme scheme format. So um, I really enjoy, uh, there's a, a translation of this that says, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't know my riddle now. I like that rhyme scheme. So, honey, you're a heifer to me. <laughs> Samson's sleeping on the couch tonight. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and he kills 30 of them, takes their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who had told the riddle. So they get the riddle's answer from Samson's wife and they say, we know the answer. You lose the bet, give us clothes. This is Samson's weakness on display. And we're going to see this weakness over and over, a very worrisome weakness in the life of Samson, a very strong weakness. He is infatuated with women. How strong the pull of quote-unquote love for a woman. I think this probably just gets down to sexual desire for Samson, but how strong... We see this constantly in the Bible. Remember, Jacob goes to Laban and says to Laban, I have met this woman, Rachel. She's your daughter. She is gorgeous. And I want to be with her for the rest of my life. If I work for you for however long you want me to work for you, will you give her to me? And Laban never says, yes, I will. He says, maybe it would be better to give her to you than to other people. But all Jacob hears is, yeah, deal. So, when Laban gives Leah to Jacob instead of Rachel, Jacob says, you went back on the promise. And Laban says, I never promised that. And it's not a custom of our people to do it that way. You heard what you wanted to hear because you were so infatuated with this woman. Truly, Proverbs verse, uh, chapter tw- 6, verse 26, Proverbs six twenty six is so true in our lives that the one who chases after the immoral woman is reduced to a loaf of bread. They just get reduced to nothing. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Samson. But the story doesn't end there. Two more verses in God's deliverance of his people. We've seen God's purpose, we've seen Samson's strength, we've seen Samson's weakness, and now we finally see God's deliverance. This is verses 19 and 20, and finishes out the chapter. He kills these 30 people, and he takes their clothes, these Philistines from Ashkelon, takes their clothes back and hands them to these men. Now, I'm sure that he did not go to the laundromat to clean these clothes. So, bloodied, messed up, throws them down at the, these 30 men and said, fine, here. They're probably looking and going, where did you get these? What, what happened? He brings the clothes back. And in the process, verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion. That's just literally best man, the person who was there supporting him, who had been his friend. What a, what a trade. Samson says, I hate what you've done to me, wife. And now I have to go and I have to get all of these clothing, uh, bring them back. So instead of saying, I'll just pay. I'll just pay to get these clothes to these people. I lost, even though you kind of did this to me, I'll pay. No, he, he wants to trade his wife for not having to pay for these uh, sets of clothing. So he says, fine, I, I'm done with this woman. But if we're honest, verse 19, there's something in verse 19 that's a bit of a struggle for us. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 Philistines. I don't think he did this in righteous anger like we talked about last week in Sunday school. It's not an example that Jeff Hawkins would have given us of righteous anger. This is just a bad temper. And yet God's working. God's using it. God's rushing upon him to do this. There's two issues here. That I see, that I that concern me. One, I look and I see Samson's anger is wrong, and that's a correct statement. God's going to use it. How does that work? God's using his wrongdoing. But number two, if you're anything like me, you read this and you think thirty Philistines just killed in Ashkelon, just like that. What did they do to deserve that? It's not the thirty people that were making the bet in the first place. Would seem a little bit more reasonable, but these are just thirty no-name people. Surely they're innocent, right? And that's an incorrect statement. So Samson's anger is wrong. That's a correct statement. But saying the Philistines are innocent, that's not correct. We've already just seen that the Philistine people are a very terrifyingly evil and wicked people when they say, hey, there's this, this riddle is happening and we're going to have to pay for a suit. We're going to kill you and your dad and burn your house down. Like those, That doesn't seem equal to me. And yet, this is normal for Philistine culture. If you're like me, you do this a lot when you read the Bible. You jump to people's innocence. I don't know if you've done this before. Like, for me, there's two stories that always stick out. The story of Samson and the story of Uzzah. Samson. God says, I'm going to make uh, water come out of a rock. Speak to it. And Samson, fed up with the Israelite rebellion and just their annoying nature, takes his staff and hits the rock. And God tells Moses, because you have hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, God tells Moses, you can't get into the promised land. And I look at that and I say, God, isn't that a little harsh? Look at how amazing Moses has been used by you to deliver your people, to bring them out of bondage. He's worshiped you. He talked with you face to face on the mountain. Can't you cut him a little slack? I look at Moses and I overestimate his righteousness. God's cutting him slack by not killing him on the spot for disobeying. is another one. Uzzah, best of intentions, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back from the Philistines. They're going to come back into play. From the Philistines, brought back into the camp of the Israelites. Everybody's rejoicing. The Ark's coming back, hits a pothole, starts to fall off of the cart. And this box that you're not allowed to touch, humans were not allowed to touch, Uzzah says, I don't want it to hit the ground. So he puts his hands out and he tries to hold it up. And as he touches the Ark of the Covenant, he dies instantly. And again, I think, God, what? why didn't you just understand his intentions they were great he wanted to keep the presence of God on the cart not fall on the ground but here's Uzzah's problem Uzzah thought that his hands were less filthy and less defiled than the dirt that the ark was about to fall on he thought well surely I can't let it fall on something so unholy and unwholesome as the ground I need to keep it up but his hands are just as dirty So no, God's not being unjust. God's being very merciful constantly throughout the entirety of the Bible. And here, these Philistine men are not innocent. And in fact, God is doing exactly what he promised to do, which is deliver Israel from this wicked people. And this is just the start. 30 people killed for their evil and their wickedness. But what about the last question? Philistines are not innocent. This is just punishment, but it's done in a very wrong way. Samson's angry, and sinfully so. This teaches us a lesson that we've learned a few times in this book. Deliverance from evil is frequently messy. It's frequently messy. But to answer this question of how God works, again, we need to look no further than the cross. God delivered you and me from our sin, from our depravity by using depravity he never tempts anybody to sin that's what we're going to talk about with James chapter 1 he never tempts anyone to sin he never says sin is okay he never forces anybody to sin Samson's not sitting there saying oh fine I'll just I'll go to Macy's I'll buy the clothes I'll pay uh the Philistines I'll get and then all of a sudden this you know trance of I feel like killing 30 people that's not what happened What happened is that he, in his sinful anger, said, I'm going to go kill 30 people and take their clothes and give them back to these 30 men. And as he decided to do that in his own mind, God says, I can use this to deliver my people. But it's a messy deliverance. So the true riddle here is not the wit of Samson. The true riddle is the sovereignty of God on display. God is going to work through Samson was a very imperfect person. And he's never going to force Samson to sin. He's never going to condone Samson's sin. And Samson's sin is never going to go unpunished. So how do we wrap this up? Two points. Number one, this is really good news. This is really good news. You say, where do you see good news in chapter 14? It's a mess, but it's a, it's a good news mess. You'll see this because God works through messes. God works through Samson. God works through incredibly terrible circumstances. God uses flawed people. It would put God into a box to say, God, you should only use people who are good. First of all, what's your definition of good? But second of all, that would be putting God into a box saying, He can't use people that are sinners and are struggling. God works by grace. Grace takes the initiative to save. God does not say, I will work when somebody takes a step towards me. I'll work in their life when they choose to do something for me. Even when we were sinners and enemies of God, Christ died for us. So this is incredibly good news and it gives us hope. But number two, it's incredibly cautious news. And here's the caution with the life of Samson. We must be so careful when we listen to this account to not confuse usefulness with faithfulness. Samson's incredibly useful for God, but he is not faithful. Just because God is using you, and I know God's using many of us to do amazing things for his kingdom, but just because God's using you doesn't necessarily mean he's condoning the things that you're doing. Doesn't mean that God's pleased in you. If you're not being faithful to God, God knows that. And it's not gonna deter him from making progress with his plans. But if you aren't being faithful, it will deter you from doing what God's called you to do. And God has not called you and me to be useful for God. God has called you and me to be faithful as we follow him. And every time we fail in that faithfulness, because we fail time and time again, we can go back to the story and be reminded God has a plan and he will never let that plan or promise be thwarted. He'll use whatever means he needs to use to accomplish that. And for you and for me, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has promised over your life, Philippians chapter one, verse six, he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And if God began that work and he's promised that he's gonna make it happen, nothing can thwart that promise. Nothing can thwart that plan, not even our own sinful stupidity. So we cling to Jesus and his faithfulness and not to our own ability to hold fast to him father we thank you so much for your word that is such a rich treasure every time we come to it blown away by seeing your character and your promises and how you will accomplish those things this morning we want to cling to christ and christ alone who is our sure foundation who is our only cornerstone and who is our strength and our support in every circumstance in life? My hope is, is. Built-